The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone today to discuss Indigenous Peoples Day is the host of This Land podcast and also award-winning writer on all things that relate to the Indigenous community. Rebecca Nagel is here. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So as I said, today I feel like is a we do this every year, but I think maybe today is the last time I'm ever going to say the words Columbus Day. I'm just going to make today the last day I ever even say that phrase. Um, I hate that it's like on my Google calendar, you know, as one of the holidays, even though Indigenous People Days is also there. I hate that the other way we used to talk about a day like today is there. Let's, for folks who have, maybe they still call to today Columbus Day for whatever reason out of habit bad habit tell them why first as we start it's not that why we should not do that why that is actually harmful and bad um, and why starting today perhaps we should just forever call October 10th Indigenous Peoples Day yeah that's a really good question I mean I think when we're talking about Columbus we're talking about somebody who uh, committed some pretty grave war crimes and so just to give content warning the stuff i'm about to talk about it contains a lot of violence including sexual violence um so uh his army um would feed uh indigenous people to dogs and use them as dog food including doing that to children in front of their parents um there are documented instances of him selling indigenous girls um like basically sex trafficking indigenous girls as young as nine or ten um and his army required um the taino people to bring them a thimble of gold dust every three months and if people didn't bring enough gold to the army um, the army would chop off their hands and most people would bleed to death from that but if they didn't they would hang their um, um, amputated hands around their neck. And so those are some of the things that Columbus did that are documented. And I think just in general, like celebrating Columbus, discovering the new world, quote unquote, um, really what that ushered in was an era of um, genocide and the transatlantic slave trade um, that devastated um you know, entire continents of people. And so it's really just ahistorical um, to celebrate it. You know, when the when Spain proposed to the UN to have like a big celebration around the 500 year anniversary, the entire African delegation walked out. And so there, this is not new. <laughs> um, this uh, criticism of Columbus, you know, when you understand the history and the harm of colonization, both what Columbus actually did as a person and what he symbolizes um, is just a lot of violence. 
I I love how you you sort of diff, made the distinction between what he did and what he symbolizes because I think like in a lot of ways both people don't know what he did, but they yeah. they were still living with the consequences of what he symbolized and and linking it directly to um, the African slave trade is important because all of this stuff is connected. I I, I was just yesterday driving home from Virginia back to DC. And one of the things that always it I never fails that I'm sort of driving through the part of Virginia where there's cotton, right? So you're just like driving past cotton. And every time I do that, I am just like, I have to be like, okay, like literally they stole human beings, forced them to come here you know, millions died on the way they, you know, there was systemic rape and brutalization to create more labor to pick that cotton that I'm driving past right now. Um, and also where it says, you know, Jamestown settlement, as we're passing, people were already there. So I'm like, what do you mean you settled here? You didn't, you killed all the people on this land and then settled there. That's what you murdered everyone. I mean, they're just like in, in a lot of ways, even looking at signs like that or monuments like that in mo- in the modern day. I'm just always struck by when you actually think about what it act with the sign, you know, a settlement <laughs> actually means. Um, it's important to focus on the, the violence. It's important to do that because you can't you yeah. shouldn't gloss over it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, to go down a little bit of a legal rabbit hole. Um, I think something that people don't realize is that Europe came up with a legal theory to permit them to occupy other people's lands, to commit genocide, and to kidnap and enslave people. And it was called the Doctrine of Discovery. Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that any non-Christian nation or group of people basically didn't have any legal rights under the Doctrine of Discovery. And so what it was, was whenever a Christian nation uh, found non-Christian people, they could lay claim to the land or to the bodies. Um, and that was the legal doctrine with which Europeans, you know, colonized, went to colonize most of the globe. And it's actually still the basis of um, federal Indian policy in the United States in this weird way. Um, it was cited in some early um, Supreme Court decisions in the 1830s and then was actually cited in the Supreme Court decision as recently as 2005. And so we still, you know, when the U.S. like won the Revolutionary War, we inherited the title of land from Britain, but Britain got it through basically this concept of that is very grounded in Christian and white supremacy. And so it's really, um, we just really have to understand that even though, you know, we're not Spain or we're not Portugal, we as Americans still live with this legacy and still have to look at the ways that it's part of the structure of our country too. Do we, are we ignorant of this legacy willfully is it not most of our fault because the education system is purposely teaching us the wrong stuff i mean at this who do you who do you hold responsible for the ignorance of most of the american public on about the details of this history that you're talking about i mean i think some people probably for the first time ever this morning as you were describing what columbus did are like whoa i didn't i didn't know that so is mm-hmm. are they ignorant 
because of our education system and and that's done purposefully or should should they at least try to seek out some of this information on their own at this point so that <laughs> um so that we're not ever ever again celebrating um a horrible a horrible person like Columbus or anybody affiliated with this <clears throat> yeah i mean i think that it's systemic and so you know i think it's easy to tell individuals, you know, you have the responsibility to read this book or do more. But when it comes to the erasure of Indigenous people in the United States, it's completely systemic, which is why Indigenous People's Day is so important. And so when you look at K through 12 education, when you turn on the radio, when you tune into Netflix, when you turn on your television, if you still watch cable, you know, um, you're not seeing Native people, less than one tenth of one percent of everyone represented in our media culture today is native. And so we're almost never represented at all. And then when we are, it's, you know, things like Thanksgiving, where it's inaccurate, it's often in way back in the history, and it's this romanticized um, historical past instead of a present day. And I think, you know, I was, I was talking about like the, the racist foundations of federal Indian law, and it's this really interesting area of the law that is forged by colonialism and racism, but also by indigenous resistance and, you know, our power in the early days of the American Republic where colonists had to sign treaties with us and mm -hmm. have diplomatic, diplomatic relationships with indigenous nations. And so, um, you know, tribal nations are another layer of government in the U.S. And just like we would expect every U.S. citizen to understand the difference between, you know, what a state is mm -hmm. or what the federal government is, you know, people need to have that understanding when it comes to tribes, and it really undermines indigenous rights that the American public doesn't have that basic 101 understanding, because when we take our issues to Congress, or when we take our issues to the courts, one of the biggest things that is against us in those battles is just the ignorance of lawmakers, of judges, of Supreme Court justices, you know? It's all so, so critically important. In terms of what um, form reparations could come in, I mean, reparations is a word that comes up when you're talking about um, the need to repair harms, um, you know, in the context of obviously the transatlantic slave trade, but also um, the genocide committed against indigenous populations. What kind, what kind of reparations are possible and do, do we need them? Yeah, so there's a slogan um, that comes from indigenous youth from indigenous youth from Canada that has become really popular in the past few years, and it's called "Land Back." And I think it's an umbrella. You know, there are these T-shirts that say "Land Back," "Language Back," um, you know, "Ceremony Back," where I think it's you know thinking about the things that were often taken illegally, um, sometimes under the blessing of U.S. or colonial law, um, <clears throat> and how do we restore those things to Indigenous nations? And so it can be examples, you know, my tribe, um, for over a century, the state of Oklahoma didn't recognize our reservation, and thanks to a Supreme Court decision in 2020 that recognized the reservation of the Muscogee Creek Nation, our reservation for Cherokee Nation was recognized. 
um, in 2021. And for over a century, the state said that our reservations didn't exist. And so even though that was a legal fiction that they had created. And so there are, I think, important legal victories like that. Um, you know, Native women are advocating for the restoration of tribal jurisdiction. So that was something that the Supreme Court took away in the late 70s. So we can't prosecute Native folks who commit crimes against our citizens on our land. So it runs the gamut, you know. Um, we are, our languages are critically endangered because of the actions of the federal government um, and the amount of funding and support that the federal government is giving to Indigenous nations with language revitalization right now is wholly inadequate to reverse that damage. So there's, there's a lot. Um, I would say if there are folks who want to get involved in an issue or follow an issue, there's a court case that the Supreme Court is going to hear next month called mm -hmm. Brackeen v. Holland that I'd really recommend folks tune into. Important note, and I'm writing that down on my paper so I can make sure to follow that as well. I mean, I, I had seen that in the docket, but I am making an additional note. Um, one of the, the other things that's happening in this particular moment, which is good, um, but maybe so long overdue that um, if, if you think I, uh, about how impactful you think it is. But in the area of representation, there has been a lot more representation um, of Native people within our government, um, whether it be, you know, elected um, up and down the ballot, you know, going to the state level, but also Deb Holland in the cabinet. I mean, does representation like that push forward in a positive way the issues that we're talking about? Is it sometimes overstated? How, how do you assess um, the importance and the success of having Native people actually represented in our governments? I think it's crucially important and I do I do think it's a big deal. I mean I, I think that one of the mm. ways that contemporary anti-indigenous racism functions is erasure, you know, and it's one of those mm. things where mm -hmm. it's an outgrowth of um, this myth of the United States that, you know, nobody was here, we came, we settled it, <laughs> and you just erase the indigenous <laughs> people instead of acknowledging um, the centuries of genocidal policy, but also without acknowledging that we are still here. And so I think that those moments of representation, whether it's, you know, new TV shows or, um, you know, mm -hmm. Secretary Deb Holland, those are really important moments, but they're not, the end goal. you know, they're, they don't, they don't, they're not totalizing. And so we still also need policy change. But, you know, I mean, so much when you talk to tribal leaders about their frustrations with interacting with federal agencies like the Department of Interior, so much of those frustrations stem from ignorance and people not knowing that much about tribal nations. So having a woman who herself is a citizen of a tribe and her family has experienced many of the failed policies of U.S. federal Indian policy, it makes a really big difference. What are some of the current issues and the current needs? Like for voters, we've been talking obviously about the midterm elections. <clears throat> Um, all morning and the importance of making sure that your voice is heard in this election. If you're somebody that wants to make sure, um, you know, you're considering the issues of indigenous people, even if you're not one yourself, what are some of the current issues that voters should keep in mind as they go out and participate? 
Yeah, you know, I would say that one of the biggest issues in the coming month is that court case that I mentioned. And so Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's not an area where we're trying to gain ground, but it's an area where we could lose um, really like the entire legal structure defending the rights of Indigenous nations is um, on the chopping block. And I think with this court, um, what is possible um, is concerning. And so it's a court case uh, brought by um, white uh, foster parents who were fostering and wanted to adopt Native children. Um, ironically, for the most part, they actually won custody of those children, not only over other Native families, but over those children's own blood relatives. Um, but nonetheless, they uh, sued the federal government because they alleged this federal law that is meant to prevent family separation in Native communities violated their constitutional rights. So basically saying they experienced reverse racism. And um, they've taken that challenge all the way to the Supreme Court. And what's scary is that they're saying this law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, is based on race and therefore is unconstitutional. But it's actually based on a political classification. It only applies to Native kids who are either enrolled in a tribe or eligible for enrollment. And that is all of federal Indian law. You know, there are lots of laws that apply to individual tribal citizens, like the possession of eagle feathers, but there are also laws that apply to tribal nations that if we are considered under US law, a racial group, those rights don't make sense. You know, what racial group has its own court system or its own police force Mm. or its own land or water rights or its own fishing and hunting rights. And those those laws are because we're distinct tribal nations that have a treaty relationship with the US. But this case has the potential to turn that all upside down. And so it's really critical that folks understand it Um, that people are paying attention because again going back to that ignorance that ignorance is why um, I believe um, ICWA you know in the past decade this you know 40 year old law about family separation has actually been challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act it's part of a concerted effort to strike it down and I personally believe it's because people don't understand it and people are so ignorant Mm. about adoption and native people that you can kind of say whatever you want and people will go along with it. So it's really important that people learn the truth about this case and um, talk about it as it heads to the Supreme court. That is really important. I want to sort of link what you just said to something you said in the beginning about the treaty relationship, because this is one of the things that I think people don't realize. I mean, it's literally one of the things people don't know. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, the treaty relationship that we have with indigenous people like there we we made deals and we wrote them down um, yeah we, we made treaties we wrote we wrote it all down and then we just <laughs> violated it <laughs> yeah this I is mean, important to understand <laughs> like i would say like there's no other area of u.s law where we would look at what is written down and say, oh, well, like that was written down so long ago, you know, or <laughs> about like the constitution or like a state constitution to be like, does it really, like, we don't really have to follow it anymore, but it's like still a legally binding document. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, the um, according to our constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land um, and the constitutional process, you know, where treaties would be made between with negotiators 
between the U.S. and tribes and then be presented to Congress and ratified by the Senate. That's the same constitutional process with which the U.S. signed treaties with Japan or Germany. And so they are legally binding documents. Um, you know, the U.S. has signed over 300 treaties with indigenous nations throughout our history. Um, and often those rights that indigenous nations have, whether it's access to healthcare, access to education, or hunting and fishing rights, are things that were guaranteed in those treaties in exchange for billions of acres of land. And so it's not, you know, a handout or special treatment um, that many anti-Indigenous activists try to, you know, categorize it. It's a, it's a legally binding agreement. And, you know, the United States has obviously benefited from the other side. Um, and so, yeah, and I, and I think that there's this, um, there's what people call a trust relationship that the U.S. federal government has with indigenous nations, but often in exchange for land, which really undercut our life ways. We weren't able to have, you know, like hunt the way that we used to or things like that. The U.S. took on a trust relationship where it said it would take care of tribes and provide certain things. And so there's a really important relationship between indigenous nations and the federal government and a responsibility that the federal government has um, to continue to provide those things and continue to protect those treaty rights when they are violated, that obviously um, the federal government consistently uh, doesn't, doesn't, hold, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't hold to. So um, yeah. I love how you started. You're like, you know, nobody ever said like, well, it was written down so long ago, so we just didn't follow it. Like, it's it's when you put it that way, it's 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 funny, but also not. Um, I want to end, um, you know, sort of in the current moment, um, and and think back just only three years. So not we're not going back um all the way in history, but just to the beginning of the pandemic because COVID um on native lands and 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 in indigenous populations was a huge issue at the beginning of the pandemic. But then there was a little bit of a, a bright spot in, in the ability of indigenous tribes to handle it, right, with additional resources that were coming in from funding bills that have since dried up, actually. Um, so in terms of COVID, I mean, are indigenous people doing okay in this particular moment? Do they are they like the rest of the American public struggling with getting more resources in this moment? I mean, it was an up and down roller coaster. I, I remember following that very closely um, throughout the first two years of the pandemic. But how is it now? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I it's so complicated yeah. and I think it also really depends on the tribal nation. And so I think it's so hard to say things that are totalizing. Mm. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of challenges. One is that the Indian Health Services, which is the federal health agency um, that provides health care to many Native Americans in the U.S., is chronically underfunded. Um, when I, and this is outdated, obviously, um, but when I reported on COVID in the early months of the pandemic, their computer system was so outdated that they were recording COVID infections and deaths by hand and tracking Whoa. it by hand because they couldn't track it in their computer system. Um, and that is still true. So, I mean, not that about the data, but IHS being underfunded. 
And so unlike other federal health programs like Medicare and Medicaid that are what are called entitlement programs, so they're funded based on, well, how many people need Medicare? And then we're going to fund it so that all those people get Medicare. The federal government does the opposite with IHS funding, where they're like, this is how much funding you get. And then it's up to those tribes and those hospitals and those networks to figure out how to give care to people. And so there's literally like a time of year where, you know, contract health has run out of money and it's, you know, you can't have that surgery anymore. And so I think what people have said, the long-term solution to the challenges we saw with COVID is that IHS needs to be funded as an entitlement program, just the way that we would fund other federal programs that are meant to give a certain amount of people healthcare or another service. It's so, so important. All of these issues and don't just talk about them on Indigenous Peoples Day. We don't. We have we have we've had you on many times, um, not just on October the 10th, Um, but it is important on a day like today um, to do a deep dive, I think, um, in the right way, because today is not Columbus Day. We're, We're not saying that anymore. And I think for the listeners at home, if you today hear anybody um, and, you know, around you say it's Columbus Day or happy Columbus Day, correct them. <laughs> Use it as an opportunity to correct them. Just be like, no, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and maybe you can give them maybe some G-rated um, information about um, some of the things Rebecca laid out here in terms of what he really did and why you're not going to want to have a holiday in his name. Um, and we're never doing that again. So happy Indigenous Peoples Day, everybody. Rebecca Nagel, host of This Land podcast, award-winning podcast by Crooked Media, I should mention. Um, we have a lot of Crooked Media um, podcasts that air here on our Progress channel. So I wanted to make sure that folks knew that and also just amazing writer covering all of these issues thank you so much for being here this morning it was always really good to talk to you thank you so much for having me thanks for listening to mornings with early night check-in for new episodes every weekday 